You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast-track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now, here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. Today, we are sharing the in-person meetup we had last month in Dallas with the local FPA chapter. The topic for this meeting was the business of financial planning, which is one of the most asked about topics that I've heard. So we hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so today's topic is the business of financial planning. So I'm kind of curious, Lynn, kind of your take on this. I know I had my take on it. <laughs> um, well, I can share some of my initial thoughts and let you. So I think a lot of, you know, it's, it's like I have two roles. I'm a financial planner and I'm a business owner. And like those are two different roles and two different almost mindset changes um, that it's a lot like being a financial planner where you're the quarterback. I mean, people talk about putting together a business plan. I think there's a lot of similarities with putting together a financial plan for a client. And so it's, you know, you're the one as the business owner, you're coordinating all of these things that all need to work in harmony in some way um, in order for you to make progress, which is exactly what we talk about with the financial plan. Um, So I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, similarities on that, but they are two different roles. Completely. So when people ask you, what do you do, Hannah? What do you say? I'm either an entrepreneur or I own a wealth manager. So I say I'm a financial planner because that's kind of more of the, I think that's more of the marketing piece of it. I do find that I'm very drawn to entrepreneurship groups. So whether that's honestly more outside of financial planning than inside of financial planning, because I don't see a lot of those. Um, so whether that be Facebook groups, blogging communities, things like that, that's just my natural draw. Um, so I think I identify, I identify as an entrepreneur who happens to do financial planning, even though I absolutely love financial planning. Um, like it'd be better than like window washers or something. <laughs> um, so I, I feel fortunate, but you know, one of the things I've heard people say repeatedly is if you want to, like, you have to know who you want to be. Do you want to be the business owner or do you want to be the employee? And there is incredible value in being an employee. Like there's so much risk, I'm sure we'll talk about later, and things to worry about with that, with being the business owner. Um, but if you're not wired for that, own that you're an employee and be the best employee you can be because you will make your your employer just so, so incredibly happy. My, my assistant now, she was a business owner in the past, and she's just like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that stress in my life. I don't want to do, you know, th- that's just not what I want to do. And because she has that mindset, she's so much more valuable to me. Number one, she understands me, I think better than most employees would understand me because she's been there. But two, like she's very happy and content with her position. So she's like, we still want to, you know, I want to see her do new things and continue to grow, but she doesn't want that ownership. Um, So know, know how you're wired. And I think that's really important. It is. Some people don't want the buck to stop with them. Yeah. And they also want to go home at 5.30 in the evening, play with their babies. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely and not. And there's seasons for things too. So I know some people who are employees now who would love to have a firm later. And they're just like, I, I can't do it right now because I have babies at home. I, you know, all of these mm-hmm. outside factors. And that's a very good thing. Mm-hmm. I was very much that way when my children were young. Worked like a dog while I was at my desk, but I went home and I was with my children, 100% engaged. And I didn't feel bad about that one bit. 
Great. So, Lynn, I know we both brought a book. We did, and we also brought talking points. Yep. So we can pass around our outline. Did you bring outlines for everybody? I didn't. Okay. I have, I have a I have a quick question. Is it? I don't. I have a, I have several friends that that uh, went to school with that they graduated, and they are like you said, they're a great employee. They're great employees. But I find it, and all they do is you know data entry, fill out paperwork, you know put data into a financial plan. There's nothing wrong with that, like you, like you get, like you've said, but I, I find it odd that somebody has gone through all the process and all the work to get their CF to to graduate from a personal financial planning school and to to do all that work and pay for all of that just to, I don't know. It just seems is it is it weird that I think that or is it is it I don't know I don't know. That's just how I feel about it. I feel it's odd that you go through all that work. And you don't want to be something more. I don't know. It's it just that's me. It's just a, you're sounding more like years. a business owner as opposed to an employee. And you'll be really grateful for those people when you want to hire somebody. <laughs> yeah. Like that. That's that's yeah. the truth of it. You know, it's what's your role that you want to do? And you know, you, I think back to like the strengths finder, I had to do it in like my freshman year of college and like achiever was one of mine. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm definitely wired that way. And so for me, it's just second nature to be like, okay, so I finished that what's next. Mm -hmm. And I have to realize that that's not everybody's like that. Like everybody in my little world, <laughs> my first person view of the world, I'm like, why everybody should be like that. But that's just, thankfully <laughs> it's not the case. Well, in my case, I would answer the question, what, you know, what do you do? Very similarly to Hannah, although I am not opposed to saying I'm entrepreneurial. In fact, what I say is I own a financial planning and investment business that I created together with my husband. In a sense, that makes me an entrepreneur. And therefore, my favorite clients are also entrepreneurs and business owners who created their own business and their own financial wealth. When, when dealing with the other entrepreneurs, because a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit is, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can do this. Correct. Do you find that you come across entrepreneurs that, that are like, I can do that. I can do that. I don't. You know, I, I'm, I'm a business owner. I've done this. I know how to do this. I can do that too. Or do you find that they're more accepting of, okay, I need your services. And I don't know. Is that, is the that answer is yes and yes. yes. You're always, no matter what client focus you have, you're always going to find people within that set that say, I can do this. What you're looking for and the skill you need to develop as you tell your story and explain your, your, uh, client, your ideal client profile, you need to become very good at finding those people within your focus that are delegators, because that's the person you want as a client. There are, I can do it myself, and there are delegators within any type of client group you might, no matter what, there are more I can do it myselfers among doctors and engineers, and you'll find that if that becomes your focus. But even among that subset of very highly I can do it yourself people, you'll still find delegators that are, that are physicians and delegators that are engineers. 
And I had want nothing to do with self-employed clients. <laughs> I see the craziness that is my life and I'm like, not craziness, but all of the stress that goes into it. And I'm like, that's not who I work with. Right. Yes, we all, and that's yeah. the good news about this business. As many different types of people as there are in the world, there's that many different people that you can serve, and we're not always on top of each other constantly. But I did summarize these eight, or identify these eight key things that I think are the most, they are the most strategic and foundational things that Tom and I were intentional about as we built our business. And the first one is you have to own and know why you chose financial planning. It has to be your reason and your story, and there has to be a passion around it because this is not an easy business. It's fraught with all kinds of risks, compliance issues, constant change, people's lives and their livelihood and their emotions. And if you don't love it, and if you don't own the story, so it needs to be your story, not the one that your parents told you to have or the one that your boss is suggesting that you have. It needs to be your story because it won't resonate if it's not yours. So point number one, why financial planning in the first place? And do you really own this business yourself, whether you're an employee or not? Do you have a story that you can tell people that compels them to want to know more? Um, so you can't tell that story enough and you can't practice it enough. You need to practice it on your family, on your friends, on your CPAs that you know, on your center of influences. Tell it. Would writing it down be appropriate? Sure. Would be... I've had the idea of, I have a very unique background and very unique story. Um, and I've thought about blogging it like once a week or mm -hmm. two times a month or something. Is, is that? Well, that's my next point under number two, the, the why. Okay. <laughs> so you'll notice I embedded in this outline a couple of things that are very hardcore business that we'd like to forget about as financial planners because we think of our business as being softer than that. But it's the, it's the Harvard Business School SWOT analysis. Point number two, why you? That's really a statement of your strengths, the S of SWOT. Point number three, why not you? <laughs> that's really the statement of your weaknesses, the W of SWOT. Um, point number four, your ideal client profile. That's your opportunities. It's your unique set of opportunities that you need to, that you need to be focusing on. That's the O of, of SWOT. And then point number five, recognizing that change is a certainty. It's inevitable. Uh, change, change represents a lot of threats in our business, not only to the industry, but to our specific business models. So understanding SWOT, you can't get away from it if you're a business owner. There's, you cannot. It's, so these, these five points are addressing the SWOT idea of owning a business. And then point six, seven, and eight are the operational element, the measurement element, and the profit and loss element of owning a business. And that's what Hannah was saying when she said, you know, I'm a financial planner, yes, but I'm also a business owner. And the two overlap, but they, they require uh, some hard decisions that affect operations, 
the way you measure what you're doing and your and the profit and loss of your business. We can, we can do an awful lot in financial planning. That doesn't mean we're going to be in business next year. So one book, I don't have it. I looked for it this morning. Um, it's called kind of a cheeky title, but it's called uh, mirror mirror on the wall. Am I the most valued of them all? Um, and it was written in 2001. It's not the best book in the world. Mm. <laughs> Just put that out there. But what it does is it walks through, it's for financial planners and it walks through what is your value proposition. And so mm. what I did I actually did this with Patrick cause he was my mentor. Um, and so I would go through and read it and I have, it, it breaks it into chapters. And so it says, you know, the first one was like, who are you? Like, I mean, who, yeah. My name is Hannah Moore. I'm a financial planner with Guiding Wealth Management. I mean, that's the first sentence of this. Um, and it breaks, so you have to just really articulate those things. So um, I can, I did this several years ago, but like, who are you? Um, what does Guiding Wealth or Hannah Moore do? Um, words that describe the unique value of your company. Words that describe the unique value of the solution you provide. Words that describe the unique value of you as an individual. And like, what are those and how are those different? And where's the overlap? What's your unique value proposition? Um, why do you do what you do? What's the direction of your company? Like you were saying, personal stories. Those are so important. Every website for financial planners looks the same. If you put a personal story, people are going to be able to remember that and relate to it. Like that's a huge, huge deal. And not, I mean, financial planners can be a little, like they, they don't want to play their cards out sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a vulnerable thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a bunch of like, I believe statements. Like I believe in the power of financial plan. Like, um, writing those out, and then how do you do what you do? Um, so I'm just walking through these notes. Walking through specific clients. So I actually listed out five clients, their key emotional issues, solutions, and the real value that I provide them. Um, you know, who are your clients? All of that information, then what makes you different, like comparing other firms. And then like write, the last one is why should I do business with you? And so that book kind of really helped me formulate those thoughts. I don't know that I've ever really used this, but just the exercise of doing it mm -hmm. really helped me gain clarity yeah, around. I think that's a great one. Yeah. I'm on chapter five. Are you on that yeah. book? Nice. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a awesome. Great. Terry, the Something name. like that. Yeah. yeah. It's a good book. It's, it's been very, very, very thought provoking. All right, so are you so, writing everything down? I have it in a very large spreadsheet. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I edit it wherever I go. So anywhere. Yeah. It's a great, great That's, book, great tool. So that that exercise will help you go through the rest of what I think are important. Absolutely, mm -hmm. no, and the, there's no shortcutting it. One po point that I wrote down under why financial planning. Assuming you say yes, you do have your story, and you really are passionate about it. Um, I have a firm belief that financial planning still, no matter what you hear at least for today, still requires competence and expertise, comfort level in both the financial planning aspect as well as the portfolio management aspect. And I think you as an individual cannot outsource either one of those to other people. We hear a lot in our industry of, of, of financial planning, just planners just hiring you know, outside money managers. But I find that you can't explain that's a critical piece in the client's mind. We might around this table all know that the actual performance of the investment is what, 5% or less of your success as an investor, but it's still the thing that the media focuses on and our clients are told in no uncertain terms by almost everyone else that they talk to, 
that if you don't have the performance of the only investment side, there's something wrong. And, and you need to be very competent on both sides of the table. Don't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been the person who outsourced a bunch for various reasons when I was back at the broker dealer and I pulled all of that in house Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of those same reasons where I'm like, this is, I'm like, this is my job. (laughs) Like this is what clients, I mean, yes, they pay me for financial planning, but they're also the tangible value that I can add on a day to day is the investment management piece. That's right. And so there's, you know, lots of great things about TAMS, about these robos, but there are things that you just can't do with robots. You can't do tax loss harvesting. You can't do some of the like asset allocation, you know, ask you what accounts should various things be in. Like you robots don't have the capacity to do that. Um, And you know, when clients call, like I want to be able to say like, I'm, and I, I did it before. I would still keep watching everything, but it's different when you're the one that has to hit the button. It's very different. And then you can answer the question, client's questions differently with a, with ownership of the decision that you made as opposed to, well, the money manager, blah, blah, blah. You know, the client stops listening when, when, you, when you say the money manager. It needs to be, I made that choice because. So... Um, Wait, the two, so the two are financial planning and portfolio management? Okay. I think they go hand okay. in hand, and I don't think you can avoid being good at both. Yeah. The, fin- the most successful financial planners that I know, and, and I don't know them all, the most successful financial planners that I know with bases of clients that, that love them, that refer to them, that stay with them, do both. In, in the in the experiences that I've seen, um, I think a portfolio, how they're constructed, constructed, tells a lot about the advisor's personality. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll get some that have hundreds of individual positions, and and you just, I look at those and I'm like, oh man, I'm curious to know that story, <laughs> you know, or I'll, you all know, see a lot of different positions and a lot of different. Uh, allocations and I'm just like man I would love to ask that person some questions so when I see those kinds of things there's a story behind it that I'm curious what it is mm-hmm. just yes, that's I think it has a lot to do with personality and who you are as an advisor it doesn't it is a story that the clients will tell their friends mm-hmm. if you've outsourced to a money manager the client's going to say well I have this great financial planner but I, you know they don't manage the money they just send it to somebody else as opposed to I have this great financial planner and this is how he or she invests the money and this is the reason behind it and this is, you know, they're that it. there's no comparison between those two conversations. In fact, the first conversation probably won't ever happen. The water cooler conversations are almost always around, you know, sometimes their financial planning, if some big event has just happened in your life and your planner really did help you through a transition, but the day-to-day water cooler conversations are around the portfolio. Mm-hmm. I wish it was different, but it's I was going to say, hopefully in some of our careers, it'll change. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned before, it was like 5% or less of the probability of success. Did you repeat that or kind of? Yeah, you know, the, the numbers, I, I don't have the exact number, so I'm not quoting the specific statistic, but as long as I've been in this business, the research has shown less than 5% of your clients' success in achieving their goals is related to investment performance and individuals' investment selection. Okay. All the rest of it is the 
planning decisions that we make, the mistakes we help them avoid, the rebalancing that we do. The savings rate. How much fuel to the fire is what I call it. Are you willing to add fuel to this fire or are we going to just be able to burn this one stack of wood and we have to keep this one stack of wood going for your entire lot? I use that all the time. That's a good analogy. So under point number two, why you, strengths, the strengths of your strength analysis, you really do need to be a lifelong learner. I can't stress that enough. Just commit to it right now. You're never out of school. You're constantly, uh, and you're not going to educational events just for the CE. You're going because you want to learn. You're constantly working on your, your uh, expertise, and you're constantly being prepared. You don't want to seek perfection, but you want to seek preparation. So you're a constant learner. And yes, write, blog, post, do whatever it is you can do. White papers in my generation, maybe those aren't such a big deal anymore. But as you're studying, what's wrong with blogging a thought you had as you learned something new? And uh, certainly as you begin to develop your idea of what is your ideal client, you should be posting any tidbit you read or come across that triggers a thought, oh, that's, relate, that's relative to my client base. Put it out there. You've got to write, blog, and post your thoughts and opinions often. And if you don't have a firm yet, I mean, still be writing because what you're doing is you're developing those skill sets. And you can post them later if you do want to go be on your own, but it's all about developing that, that writing muscle. And it's not just your writing muscle. It's how are you clarifying your thoughts around a topic? Mm -hmm. And that, that's really what you're doing. Um, so the more you can do that now, the better it'll be for you later. No question. Because uh, the, you also need to know how are clients finding you? More and more today, it's going to be through things you put out there. Mm -hmm. And the things you find yourself writing about will help you define your ideal client because the two are very closely related. You know, hate to use the word niche, but it'll help you air, uh, define what your passionate focus really is because uh, under point number three, your weaknesses, we like to, we like to skip that one mm. because none of us have any weaknesses. But you, it really does pay to be brutally honest with yourself about your failures. And try to understand to the extent, every client that I ever lost, I tried. I didn't get, I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to get an answer from all of them. But I attempted to say, why did you choose the other advisor over me? And in an employee setting, go to your bosses. Why do you, what did you think about that presentation? Why do you think I lost that client? What, what do you perceive my weaknesses to be? Because that way you can then understand them and start a, turning them into a strength through education, through Toastmasters or you name it, whatever you need to do to strengthen whatever your weaknesses are. Um, I think that's an important point too, that you can build up your weaknesses. Like if you're bad at writing, like that's okay. Like you can work with an editor, you can work with a writing coach, can do videos. I mean, there's a lot of ways to compensate or to get better. That does not define you. If anything, it's going to kind of push you in a unique way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's important to know those. 
Right. When I first got started, I my mentor at Merrill Lynch was happy when we failed because that's a learning opportunity. Uh, let's see, point number four, the ideal client profile, that's your opportunities. You have to know who you love working with, and it'll come with time. You, uh, every time you have a client that you really like, that you can tell they're implementing, it's, you would call it a successful client relationship, then stop and, dis and, and say, what does this person do? How old are they? Where do they live? What are their hobbies? Why, why do I like them so much? Try to figure that out. Um, that, that was part of your exercise. Yeah. Well, one, so I have two client profiles. I think I've told you guys about my retiring Ricardo's and my successful Sally's are. And so I have like three, I mean, I just have pages on them. And so anytime a client's in a meeting and they just say something that I'm like, Oh, like, like that's a really good, that's a concern that any prospects would. So on those descriptions, I just have quotes that my clients have said mm -hmm. that I'm like, this, this really defines this unique type of client. And that's great. See, I say narrow and concise. You can't get more narrow and concise than two words. Successful Sally and what? Retiring Ricardos. Re retired Ricardos. Boom. That describes your client. And if you say to somebody, I look, I work with successful Sally's, they're going to immediately know who not to be thinking about really, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's great because the more you can eliminate your clients needing to think about who it is you work with, the better off you are. They need to know. Successful Sally's go to Hannah. Re retired Ricardo's go to Hannah. Boom, boom, easy. Helps me. That's a great example of narrow and concise. I said one or two sentences, never more than that. Um, and focus on retention. Don't be so worried. I know they call this an asset gathering. You know, your bosses are probably talking about, you're an asset gatherer, you're not a money manager. <laughs> That's what they used to tell us. Yes, but holding on to one really great client is a whole lot better than getting 12 and losing you know, 10 of them, <laughs> I think. Focus on ways to um, change is a certainty. That's the threat of our business. There's risks out there. Compliance is your friend. Don't complain about compliance. Love your compliance <laughs> officer. And learn as much as you can. Like if they're sending mm -hmm. stuff back to you, figure that out and don't make the, like it, it's so important. That is a huge, huge risk in our business. It just is. And you cannot, there's no model, you know, RIA only, they say, I, the, the people I know that have gone that route and Hannah's mm -hmm. one, many of them say, well, it's so much less. One of the first comments I hear is, I, I don't have to deal with FINRA anymore. Uh, so much less oversight. That's just not true. SEC has its own form of oversight. There's just things you should and should not do, and you just need to stay well within the boundaries of what is compliant, especially with the DOL changes and robo-advisors and you name it. Well, I think this goes back to where you you were talking about how you have to be a lifetime learner and you can't be complacent. As soon as you start getting complacent, it's okay, you need to really be reevaluating what you're doing because there's so many changes to compliance. There's so many changes just in the world right now that if you're not actively going to conferences or sitting on those webinars or learning, you 
There's tremendous risk. There is. So, um, another threat to our business is inefficiency. And we talked on this last time with our session about CRM and task management and business processes. But a big threat is lazy practice management. Mm -hmm. And I like the mantra of, I tell my staff, avoid touching the same task more than once. You have a task and you've checked it off your list and then the next thing you know, something related, that task is back on your plate. It means that the process didn't follow all the way through to implementation, was not as efficient as it could have been. Um, sometimes, I'm not going to say tasks never come back to you, but if they do, we, you need to be 100% certain that there was no other way to get that done besides coming back to you. So constantly be challenging the efficiency of your daily tasks and make certain that you're not touching the same task any more times than is absolutely necessary. I heard somebody say once that you can run a team of like two to three, maybe four, um, if everybody's highly competent and be very inefficient and still have high production. But if you ever want to go above that, if you don't have that, that those systems and those process and that mindset, which I mean, I struggle with, pro I, I've said that many times, I struggle with processes, but they're so important if you ever want to grow beyond, That's right. beyond that. That's exactly right. Any questions so far? I've been plowing through just in the interest of time because there's so much on this topic. Oh my gosh, I know. I, yeah. You know, we talk for hours about this, but I mean. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> I'm writing all this down. So. Yeah, right. keep going. Well, so point number six, understand your capacity. So mm -hmm. that speaks to operations and, and avoid over committing. So you're always approving efficiency. This is really our topic that we talked about last time. You have to have a process that is great in all caps, systematic, and it provides a consistent experience for your clients. And that was what Hannah, with her, I forget what system you purchased, mm -hmm. but she delivers in the same way and in the same uh, timeline and in the same flow every time. And that is so critical. Clients get comfort in that. They develop trust in that. Mm -hmm. If it's helter-skelter and they never know what they're going to get when they come in to meet with you, it's, it is very unsettling. So um, it has to be great. And then you have to track your, your implementation and your action steps, not only for you, but for your staff, if you ever have any, and your clients. I think that is one of the things that separates our business. If, if you asked me what was one what was one of our value proposition points, it is execution. We execute. You execute. We execute. That's why you hired us. We get it done. So operation. Now the measurement. This is the part we all hate. You have to write a business plan, even as an employee. You have to have a business plan that is measurable and quantifiable and trackable and all of those things. You have to do it. Um, but keep in mind that 
Production precedes perfection. That's back to my story. I started with the client who spent all her money trying to be perfect before she ever had one client meeting. You're going to have to go out there and ask for the business before you have everything in place. I did bring, they are old, yellow paper. I brought two of my earliest financial, what I called success plans, to, to demonstrate what I mean by measurable and actionable and touching on all the, the elements of a business. We even graded ourselves at the end of the year. Um, but you can, I'll, I mean, those are, the, those are not copies. Those are the actual ones from 2000 and 2001 when our company was like yours. And we were not employees. We were sole proprietors within a larger organization, but we, it was just the two of us. We didn't have a staff. We were thinking about adding a staff member at some point, maybe one of those plans Maybe one of those plans talks about, you know, hiring and interviewing for that staff member mm -hmm. finally. But you see how I gave it. I gave myself a timeline. I checked things off. I held myself accountable for doing it or not doing it. Um, among all the different categories that you would bring into any reasonable business plan there's probably a million better ways of doing it today, software packages and who knows what. <laughs> but I don't care how you do it, you have to do it. You have to write it. Um, and you have to track yourself on a daily, monthly basis. You have to, I say, update the budget numbers around your plan every six months, not, not just annually. There's no escaping that. Oh, awesome. I don't want to see this. <laughs> I'll be happy to send. I have the soft copy if you want it. I'll, yeah, that would be great. Just just to try to provide some reference, because it seems like you've put together so much thought into, into so, all these different areas. I yeah, that's, starting out, I wouldn't even know where to start with a lot of these things. So yeah, I can definitely use your ideas if you wouldn't mind. Okay, no, I'm happy to. Sure. The um. What Tom and I used to do, or we still do to this day, is we go for, now it's a full week, it used to be a long weekend, we go away to a cabin in the woods with a fireplace in our case, and we do our planning, apart, away from the office, away from the dog, away from family, away from any distraction, it's just the two of us, to, to do this every single year. Yeah, that's great. Well, what I love about this is you have stuff scratched out. You're like, mm -hmm. actually, on second thought, we weren't going to do that. Yes, yeah, yes. Like, I think yeah. that's, it, I think that shows the adaptive nature of it. Yeah. We're not, none of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we have ideas and sometimes they're bigger than our, than we can execute. And you have to be realistic about that. But at the same time, you're also tracking. So the point eight is generating incremental revenue, the profit and loss side of things you're tracking all the time whether these activities actually make money for you or actually add you any new clients. If the answer is no, then stop doing it. Yeah. Our industry is full of ideas of ways you can spend money. Yeah. Well, I 
cannot agree more. This is one of my soapbox issues. It really irritates me. Um, is I see, I see it at least once a month, oftentimes more of that, where friends of mine who I know really, really well in the profession are quoted in national magazines, are quoted on big blogs, are quoted on all of these different things saying, if you wanna do online marketing, here's a great example. And I know for a fact they have not gotten clients from that. I've had conversations with them about that. So there's a lot of people who say good ideas, but it's like you really need to talk to them and find out, are you actually making money on this or are you not? Um, because I think what we show and like what's being broadcast d is not always connected to reality. So if you're trying to do something and it's not making you money, like you need recognize that and stop doing and it. stop doing it. And just because so-and-so expert who's never actually done this with any clients, so this is what you need to do, doesn't mean that that's actually going to work for you and work with all of the things that make you unique and who, your clients unique. Like it's, again, that's the business owner side where like, you're the one responsible for this. Like you can't push us off on a consultant. You can't push us off on a blog. You can't push us off on whatever expert, whoever said what it's, is this working? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. Completely. Same experience. I'm in top advisor sessions all the time. And, and, and when we get around to marketing, you hear all the client event stories. Oh, I have this guy come out and talk about this. And I always ask two questions. Number one, did clients bring friends? In other words, were you in front of somebody new that could become a new client? The answer is almost always, well, no, I didn't ask them to bring a friend. No, they didn't bring me friends. No, it was just my clients. Well, that's great. That's client appreciation, client education. We need to do a certain amount of that. But does it allow you then to get more? Did that session allow you to get more assets from your current clients? No, no. Okay. When you get down to tracking your profit and loss and you're looking, you're tracking your income by source, by your expenses, by category, your assets by type, and, and you do a whole lot of these client appreciation events, if it's not adding to your bottom line, it's not a good business decision. There's other ways to create loyal clients that don't cost you as much money as a whole bunch of expensive events do. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think marketing also tells, again, tells a story. If you... I put something together and I'm going to put it in front of a client. I believe in this. This is my, this is what I truly am passionate about. And you know, if I'll present anybody, you know, it tells a story about who you are. And so ideas are great, but until you actually formulate what you believe and put it into something that you can put in front of a client, that's where you'll, that's where the rubber hits the road. It does. Mm -hmm. It completely does. And I'm an idea person. So, I mean, this is a huge, like, I mean, I, you want an idea, I can give you 10 right now. Like, I mean, it's, it's, they come that easy, but it's just recognizing the line and it is okay to do things that don't make you money. I mean, it is okay. The podcast, I mean, like we have examples of it, but know what it is and recognize what that is. Yeah. And manage the time yeah. and the financial expense related to activities that don't make money. Yes, they create goodwill. Yes, they create loyal clients. We need to do them, but they don't need to be hugely time-consuming, mm -hmm. and they don't need to cost us a lot of money out of pocket to do. Podcast is a perfect example of you're recording something you're already doing, so it's not additional time, 
and you're putting it out there in a way that is not an, a paid advertising spot, so it's not costing you extra money, huge bang for your buck. I think the number is closer to close to 85%. This is an old presentation, but the numbers haven't changed. 85% of your clients are going to come from your existing clients. End of story. No matter what you do. You're not going to... Across the board, You in this business, you get clients from happy clients. And then the next best source is center of influences, predominantly CPAs and and then attorneys, but there's plenty of other CP center of influences you can develop. But the biggest one is your own clients. If they're happy with you, if they know what you do, they can tell your story. If they know what you're looking for in the way of a new client, you'll, you'll build a business from that. I'm looking for that step. This is my one of my favorite books. Easy to read. Tony Jerry J E A R I Strategic Acceleration. But also I've heard traction's good and I have not read it yet. Yes, yeah. 84 per, uh, Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, traction's the book that I, I just read it like probably 4 months ago. Um, and it's really kind of changed how I view a lot of things. Um, they say, I'll just kind of run through this really quick, that there are six elements that you need to run a successful business. One, the vision that like we've been talking about. Um, you have to have the vision and you have to be able to communicate it. People buy your story and buy you, not the product. Um, you have to surround yourself with great people. So this can be employees, this can be vendors, other resources that you have, but you're that matters um, a lot. So I always used to tell people like, I'd rather overpay and have a great person than to underpay with someone who shouldn't be with me. Um, I think that's a mistake a lot of business owners I know make. Um, again, like the data, the measuring, I'm not nearly as good as I should be, but that's something that I'm getting better at. Um, being able to identify the big issues and how to deal with them. Um, again, not everyone's cut out for this. This can be DOL issues. I have, I have a soapbox issue of, of um, if you're the business owner, like you take on the responsibility of the business. So, I mean, that means that employees could leave and that's not, there's so many, I feel like codependent relationships there. And it's like, that's not healthy. Like as a business owner, I know that my assistant could leave at any time. And that's just one of the risks that I carry. And that's not for her to feel bad about leaving or anything like that. It's there, there's a level of healthiness that needs to be there. Um, I see this a lot with employees of saying, like, I don't know what my boss would do without me. Well, you're probably in an unhealthy business relationship. <laughs> like that's, that's not good. Um, but an issue is employee leaving or lots of issues there. Again, process, what you, how, you, how do you do what you do? Um, but it's only a piece. I feel like so many financial planners get obsessed about what is their process and what is onboarding your client look like. Um, and they miss out on the bigger business because they're so laser focused on that. Um, and then traction's actually making the progress. So what I did, um, I went, my study group gets together every year in person. And so one of my study group members, uh, Daniel Frankel, actually is the one who really put me on this, it's EOS, Entrepreneur Operating System. And so one thing that I did that was really helpful, I did this on the airplane. Um, I went through... 
I went through and I wrote out a bunch of things that he was like, just go through this. And so I have in five years and I have a bunch of, in five years I envision and I have seven or so of these here. Um, and so it's just saying, what do I want my firm to look like? What do I want my life to look? I think all of this was my firm. Um, and then I have, you know, in five years, what do I want my role to be? And so I listed out again, more I envision um, how many hours do I want to be working? What, what type of work do I want to be working with my clients? Um, the next page was in order to achieve this, I must, the following must happen. And so I wrote out a, a number of statements on that. And then I wrote out exactly, like I said, how many hours. But the other thing that I did that was so cool was I wrote out in five years, what is the organizational chart that I want for my company to be? So right now it's, it's not this at all, but it was like in my ideal, this is what it would be. And what that really helped me do was say, what roles do I want to be playing? And what roles, I, I, now I'm playing most of these right now, or a lot of these. Um, my assistant plays some of these roles. Some of these roles don't exist, but it's helped me really say like, okay, so when I need to outsource, this is what I'm willing to outsource. This is the first thing that I need to be willing to outsource. But it gave me that bigger perspective that I didn't have. Um, so that was one kind of interesting exercise that I found really helpful. Uh, the other thing that this book talks about in order to do, um, they talk about like in the traction section, I guess I'll tell you what was most impactful for me that's really stuck with me is quarterly rocks. So again, I'm the achiever. That's my strength finder. That's, so it's, I felt like I'm constantly in this spot of, I have new ideas. I should do them and I'm not doing them. So I'm not being successful. So it's this really bad cycle. And so one of the things that they say is every quarter you have anywhere from three to five rocks that you have to do. Not you have to do, but like in 90 days at the end of this quarter, I want to see these things happen. So it's at the end of the quarter, the quarter will be successful if these things happen. And so now on my desk, I have a list of what my rocks were for this quarter. So we're coming up to the end of the quarter and there are some things that aren't done yet. And I'm feeling the pressure of being like, I said this would be successful if these got done. <laughs> and so... What does ROCK stand for? Um, I don't think it's an acronym. Oh, okay. Maybe it is. Like a real rock? I think so. R-O-C-K? Yeah. Okay. I think it's like that story of like, how do you fit all the rocks, the pebbles, the water, okay. everything. Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. kind of the idea sure. of it. Mm -hmm. um, but that's been really, really helpful. And it's also changed my mindset on new projects and new new things because I'm always trying to do too much. Um, so now when people come to me with an idea, I'm like, okay, I can't do that this quarter. Next quarter, I only have like four spots. Like, is this important enough to be one of those? So I've started telling people, the soonest I could even think about doing this is either fourth quarter or first or second quarter of next year. And that's a huge mind shift, mindset shift for me that's been, I think, really healthy and really good for my business. It's excellent. It's excellent because it allows you to focus. Focus yeah. is key and you can't focus on so many things. Yeah. And I forget, we did fail under your business plan to talk about. It's not just an annual business plan. It's three years out, five years out. You, you mm -hmm. always have to have that timeline for staffing, if nothing else. Yeah. Knowing when is it going to be time to bring on that next new person so that then 18 months before that you can start interviewing and looking for that next new person and be so that you've talked with enough folks to find the right person by that magic 18 month period 
If you don't, it's going to be time to have that person. Your business has plateaued and you don't have the person on board because you haven't even started looking yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hiring the right person, I think that is absolutely Critical. key. Critical. And that can be from an editor. It can be from a right. It just even things that you outsource. Mm-hmm. And so my, my suggestion there is you have to, and you, you may feel like you're so far away from the point of hiring someone, but it'll be here before you know it most likely. You have to talk to a lot of people, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, before you know it when you see it, the one that's right for you. You know, when I've talked to a number of young people and they're always, and I'm like, you're always, it's almost like anytime you go to a networking event, anytime you do anything, it's almost always like a job interview because I guarantee you these advisors who have firms, they are always on the lookout for good people. Mm-hmm. And even if they can't hire you today, it could be a year from now, two years from now. I mean, it's, it's that important. Mm-hmm. No question. That's true. The other thing some of my friends have joked about who've started their own firms, they could not find a job to save their life. And so they started their own firm and then all of a sudden all the job offers came. So there's also some like, but they're like, we've already committed to this, but it's, so it's kind of a funny thing that happens. What is this? Explain what, what strategic acceleration is about. What, what does that mean? It's about implementing, getting things done. He, he works mostly with CEOs. So this book was not written for the financial planning industry specifically. And that's one of the reasons why I like the book. I read it when it first came out. So it's been a while and I'm not going to be able to give you a lot of specifics. But we had every one of our staff members read it. He came to Dallas. We went and heard him. It's, it is, in my opinion, the best book I ever read about getting things done. And that's James Clear and growing. I, I, James Clear is a blogger that I follow and like, and he does a lot about habits. And he says, you know, so often we're chasing that 1% of like excellent, like 1% of like growth that's going to be this exponential piece. Like if we would just focus on all the stuff that we know, like we know that we need to return phone calls within 24 hours. We know that we need to do this. We know we need to, like all of the basics. Like if you focus on those, your growth is going to be so much more than if you chase this oddball 1% of this new idea or this new, new leadership strategy or new business strategy. Mm-hmm. It's get the basics down. I couldn't be I couldn't be more behind that statement. That is absolutely true. In-depth preparation of every little nuance of your client's situation, over almost over-preparing for things that you think might come up in a meeting. It's amazing what it means to a client when something that wasn't on the agenda, but you prepared and you had you had the answer and then then they ask about it in the meeting and you're able to say, well, you know, I did think about that as I was preparing for this meeting and this is what I have. Boom. Mm -hmm. Client for life. Please promise me you will never skate into a meeting with a client having not prepared. (laughs) Happens all the time. All the time. Are you serious? Oh, it's bad. You get all report, all investment report. Yep. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a risk I wouldn't be willing to take. <laughs> well, you just expect your client, they expect their clients not to ask questions. Are you serious? 
I don't know. I can't, I can't figure out the why behind it. That's the mindset change too of, I think between financial advisors and financial planners, like there is people who just focus on the investments versus people who focus on the bigger picture. Like it's, it's a complete mind. I think, I think it's one of the dividers between what is the industry and what is the profession. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to, again, my point up in one, be competent in both sides in all aspects of what it means to be a financial planner. Because if you're trying to, if you're offloading one or the other, then you're not going to prepare very well for a meeting on that topic. You need to be prepared and answer phone calls. Yeah. Do what you say you're going to do. Was there one point in, in, in either of your lives where you're like, okay, I have prepared as much as I, at what point was it where you're like, all right, I've, pre- I've done everything I can. It's time to walk outside the front door and go talk to this person or go meet with these people or you know, do something, you know, you, you done it, you know, at what point was it where you're like, I feel like I'm, I can't prepare anymore or else I'm wasting time. Did you, did you either of you have that kind of moment where you were like, like with clients? Yeah, where you're like, all right, it's time to well, round up. I think one of the other really good skill sets with clients is listening well. Um, so a lot of times when clients, they ask me a question, I don't, I, there's so much, I, they, I've heard people say like the conversations, like you think the conversation went great if you're the one who talked the most. Um, and so I think a lot of it is really good listening skills. So, I mean, for me, I think, I think there's a point that you could never be prepared for clients meetings, what happens. I mean, I've been in client meetings where I have whole stacks of paper walk in ready and it, the meeting went entirely different. I mean, just entirely different, but that's exactly what the client needed. So I think there's preparing and I think there's like, where's the client at today and how do I meet them exactly where they're at and hopefully get them to take one step closer to where I think they should go. And maybe I'm wrong on where I think they should go, but having those conversations. I think you chase excellence versus perfection, right? Mm -hmm. Because perfection is going to lead you to burnout, whereas excellence is going to lead you to becoming better, right? Mm -hmm. It's more energizing for sure, more more creatively piquing your interest to go further. So there's two different answers I would have for you. If, If I'm preparing to go out and ask for the business, Yes, I was over-preparing for going out and asking for the business. I learned that the hard way, almost like my client. And I had an advisor, fellow advisor at Merrill who said, you are not doing your existing clients any favor if you don't stay in business. And the only way you're going to stay in business is by getting more clients. Stop preparing to ask for the business and do it. So that's why I put that in here. It was a lesson I learned in my first two years of the business. And um, I think what you do is if you didn't get the business, you try your best to find out why and you change that little bit about what what you've already prepared for those kinds of meetings and then you just go have the meeting instead of preparing. But if it's an existing client and I have a meeting on the calendar and I know that they're coming in, the first thing I do to help focus my preparation is one week before the meeting, I contact my client the way they prefer to be contacted, but most of the time it's by email. 
with an outline. These are the things we're working on in preparation for your meeting. Please let us know if there's anything else that has come up that we don't know about that's important to you. And then I call them the day before the meeting to say, we are ready for you. These are the things we've analyzed. Has there been anything else come up that we might not be aware of that you'd like to focus on? So twice they get that question before they come. And um, I make sure I can answer that question if I don't have anything else. But um, I also kind of draw the line at 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> Whether I'm tired or not. <laughs> I, I don't think you can be overprepared. You can't anticipate everything, but yeah. it's just such a beautiful thing when you have the answer prepared for that unexpected question. Yeah. I don't know how to shortcut that. Yeah, I, uh, it, my, yeah, my first, uh, I, I don't have my own clients, so going out and finding that first client is what I think I'm most intimidated by. All the paperwork, all the preparation, that's all easy. That's all fun and great, and it's, it's exciting, but getting up from my desk, walk out the door, you know, that's where I'm like, okay, am I really, I don't know, do I have what it takes, I guess, is, is the question to, to do it, so... That's where most. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, you can. You go first. <laughs> if I was your supervisor, I would tell you to set an appointment a day with, I don't care if it's family members, friends, your wife, your brother, mm -hmm. your CPA, your pastor at church, you name it. Every single day, you have one out of office appointment with somebody. And you are going to tell them your story, why you're a financial planner, why you do what you do, why you love it. Ask them to give you feedback. Tell them right now what you believe your ideal client profile is. Ask them what they think. These are, these are I need your help meetings from people that can help you and that will be honest with you. And you're refining your story. It does two beautiful things. It gets you out from behind your desk. You practice your story. You refine it. You get better at it. At some point, they're going to say, you know, I know somebody that fits that description. Yeah. But you also never fail to say, "Is there? who do you think, could you help me by introducing me to someone else I could meet with to tell my story? You, the idea is you're not going to leave that meeting without another meeting or another person to contact for a similar meeting. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I think Elizabeth Gilbert has done some work on like fear. Um, mm -hmm. And I love how she describes it as like just fears the friend. And like you, it's just like, oh, you're here again. Okay. Like acknowledge it and then move on. So, I mean, I was, we were recently in a meeting where, I felt like I was so in over my head. It wasn't even funny, like whatever, um, like a partnership type situation that, that was being proposed. And I was just like, I was terrified. But then it's like, okay, so I'm terrified. 
that that's great. I can recognize that. And because I can recognize that, that means that I can now move on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that that's back there. So I'm going to over-prepare and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to nail this. And, and so I think some of it is, um, I just like on Facebook, you know, those silly little videos and like Will Smith was doing one about like skydiving and how like the fear he had going up in the airplane. But then when he jumped, it was like the most blissful experience. And his thing is, you know, some of the greatest things in life are always preceded by like this intense fear of like, what do we do? And I think that's some people that fear prevents them from ever doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and those are your employees. You said there's a book or an article or, uh, or something. Elizabeth Gilbert. I can't remember. She's written a number of books. Mm -hmm. I don't know the name of it, but um, I was going to say the same thing. Fear always shows up on the other side of something really amazing. Yeah. So it's like you have to get through that fear mm -hmm. to get this mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a negative emotion. And it doesn't yeah, ever go... And it's it an energizing yeah, emotion. And it doesn't go away. So I think it's more how do we respond when we see fear? Number one, it's identifying it. And then it's like, okay, that means something is really cool could be here. Mm -hmm. And then is it worth it? I mean, that, that's really what the question comes down to. How can I get to the cool part of yeah. this fear? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then make it not about yourself. Like it's not, you know, especially with like prospects, like it's not about me getting a new client. It's like, oh my gosh, like what could I give their family? Like the value that I have to offer them, like if they were to go on without a financial advisor, they are not in a good spot. The value that I have to provide is so great that I know that this is going to impact their life. Yeah. And I know that the value, like this isn't about me anymore. This is, you really need help. And I know that I can provide this. Even if you don't do it with me, like know that like this is, financial planning is so important that like, even if it's not me, find somebody else to do it with. Okay. And really tap into that, what is your passion about financial planning? And let that be leading the way rather than, oh my God, I have to find a new client. Yeah. That's true. That's, that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's up yeah. in box number one. Know your story and your passion. And yes, if you're if you're across the table from somebody and you don't you are not so compelled that they need the solutions you offer, then you're wasting your time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Better be prepared. <laughs> You better know that they need you and, and, and feel so strongly about it that if they're not going to select you, it's important to you to make sure they select someone else. Yeah. And that's another thing I've done when I met with a prospect is I've asked them, do you mind if I follow up to see what decision you make? And I have called them back to say, sometimes I get an answer, sometimes I get, don't, but I've called them back to say, what did you decide? Who are you going with? Because it matters that much to me that they actually... Yeah do something and we're in such a unique profession it's not like window washers it's not okay your window's gonna be a little dirty like people might think bad about it it's like what we do significantly matters have you ever seen those people that you follow up with eventually become clients like has that ever been in the case we've had a few because they didn't go with anyone and they did what most people do is they don't implement that's another phrase i've used with people you don't need me if you're going to implement everything, every action item that comes across your plate related to your financial life or your goals. You don't need me. But if six months goes by and you still have important action items that have not happened, then you need me or someone like me because life will not move forward in the strategic way you want it to if you don't take action. Yeah. Yeah. 
Have you ever read uh, The Seven Habits? Mm-hmm. No. The grandfather of all <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> leadership. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, a chapter or so into that one. I got the preface yesterday. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he talks a lot about highest and best use, spending your time where you're the, in the beginning, you're going to have to wear all the hats, just like Hannah yeah. said, her little flow chart. Yeah. So, Stephen Covey yeah. would tell her to get down to one or two boxes. Right now, she you don't have that luxury. But in the process of filling all the boxes, you determine which ones are your highest and best use, and then you can delegate the others or decide whether they're that critical anyway to begin with. Well, I don't have a card on me, but I really want a copy of this. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is great. This is really great. I'll so. send it to you. I'll send it to Hannah. And okay. Are you okay with us putting it on the internet? You can say well, no. Sure, sure. I'll take out anything that might be client related, but no, I'm happy for you to oh, put it out. It, it's, it's so, such a dinosaur. I'm in hopes there's a better way of doing it, really. So do you still do this? A different format. Different format. Now that we're Cadent. So I have all the way up through 2010, which was the year we created Cadent Capital. Have you ever given yourself an A? No. <laughs> <laughs> Never an A. That comes at retirement. I have done it. I have done it. Um, no, this, yes, you are right. This is, I mean, it, it may be old, but it is thought provoking. It's okay. going to spark something. It will, what am I already thinking that this is another way of looking at it, or this is a different format, whatever it may be. It's just another way to provoke thoughts and ideas and, and, just be more efficient. Like my, in my mind, the way I think about things, is this efficient? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be efficient with this? And if the answer is no, I rethink, mm-hmm. redo, scrap, rewrite. How can I be more efficient? So this is, I think this is a great way of laying it out there. Or at least, at least uh, getting the thoughts going and the process going. So. Yeah. Okay, no problem, I'll email it. it. A special thanks to our friends at the Milestone Group, Bank of Texas, for hosting us. As a reminder, if you want to see Lynn's business plan, including their profit and loss, go to financialplannerpodcast.com to download it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.